We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome out there in, in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for the 58th episode of the Rock Art Podcast. Hang on for dear life on this one. We've got a very unusual gentleman, Olaf Dowd, who spent most of his adult life working on rock art replication and had the opportunity to produce a rock art petroglyph park and brought all these tons and tons and tons of rock, engineered it, and made rock art replicas for the Rock Art Festival and educate the public during Native American Month right there in Ridgecrest, California. Can't wait to hear from this one. Well, hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And this is the 58th, almost up to 60, episode of the Your Rock Art Podcast. I'm pleased as punch to be here with you today. And we're going to have quite a, a bit of a different discussion. We're going to have someone on board here who uh, we haven't had anyone who's uh, got the expertise or the special core competency of a gentleman by the name of Olaf Dowd. And Olaf is a rock art replicator. That's what I would call him in part. But he's also a, a relatively uh, genius guru kind of guy who produced, I'd say one of the first, if not the only, petroglyph park, rock art park for the uh, city of Ridgecrest, California, in Eastern California, who just hosted their seventh petroglyph festival. And at that park, we have uh, remarkable images uh, to look at that are that are uh, life-size or even grander than that. Olaf, are you there? I am here, Doctor. We're honored and blessed to have you. And the way I usually get this started, since we are going to talk a bit about rock art, and mainly about your amazing adventure in terms of getting into all this. So the million-dollar question that we kick off this with 
is how the heck did you get into rock art replication? How did you come to know anything about rock art and and uh, the kind of work you did even before you were asked to do the um, Petroglyph Park? Well, I graduated with a degree in archaeology. Okay. From where? Sacramento State. Okay. And I went to work right away in human resources in a chemical plant. Okay. Perfect, huh? And where was that? In Trona. No, it's 25 miles from here. Okay. So you're out in the desert? Right. We're out in the desert. And I did a number of archaeological jobs for them. And then I started making small petroglyphs for the museum. And at that time, it was on the base. And I and that was for the Ridgecrest Museum at the Matarango there at, in Eastern California, correct? Right. Actually, it was on the base at the time. Oh. Okay. <laughs> On the Navy base. but and it, So I started doing more and more of that and selling more and more and going out to various art and craft shows where I did pretty well. And I got to be pretty good at making the small. Yeah, were those, those were the smaller ones, right? Were those ones that people would put in their homes and put on their walls? Right. Am I correct? Okay. Yes. And then I started making bigger and bigger ones. It still go in the home, but we're getting pretty heavy. But with my background and my petroglyph making experience, when this opportunity to build a petroglyph part came up, I got the nod, fortunately. So how many years did you do sort of freelance rock art replication and sales to the general public? Oh, about 30 30 years. <laughs> 30 years. Oh, my word. I had no idea. So was this just an avocation, I presume, or you didn't do this full time, did you? No. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't make a living doing it full time, but it was certainly my uh, my first love. Well, tell me what the subject matter was. It was the Koso rock art. Okay. Was it, was it always rock drawings, and was it always... California, or was it other areas of the country or around the world? What was it? I concentrated on the local area using basalt with a patina on it and chipping into that and making the figures that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing some work in clay, ah. which I would paint black. And Tell me about the work in clay. How'd that work? It's a lot different than the basalt as far as... Uh, has difficulty, too. It was so nice to work in clay. <laughs> so when you worked in clay, was it still uh, as an artistic rendition or was there objects yeah. that you sold? No, it was pretty much like the, the petroglyph glyphs that I had done all along. But I got to add turquoise and uh, oh. projectile points and coral, all kinds of neat colors. So you were adding colors you weren't actually adding pieces of minerals or any other uh, rare or uh, valuable gemstones or anything like that. Right. So during this these early 30 years of your avocation, give us a sense of variability in the subject matter or the, or the actual character of these objects. So I presume they were things that people put on their walls or installed in their homes. Was that right? Yes, that's right. And the petroglyphs are known pretty well here in Ridgecrest, so I had a pretty good audience to sell the, the local petroglyph replicas to. Okay. And for those that are, are new to our our podcast, maybe tell them a bit about the subject matter and the 
petro the, the petroglyphs that are in fact obviously one of your passions and one of your specialties is doing the Ridgecrest imagery. Maybe uh, tell them a bit about what particular subjects and what things you rendered on those objects for that first 30 years of your tenure as doing this. <laughs> well, as you know, most of the local petroglyphs are of bighorn sheep. Mm -hmm. But my artistic side said that uh, if I did 40 bighorn sheep glyphs myself, that they might not sell too well. So I went on to the uh, pattern body anthropomorphs. Right. And tell, tell us what those are. Those are chipped figures that when you look at them, you pretty much know that they were human because they have arms and legs, but they were dressed up. You can see the, the patterns in the petroglyphs where their shirt and skirts were. Yeah. So some uh, one of the ways I, I talk about them to people who don't know this esoteric, you know, psychobabble terms, as I call them, decorated animal human figures. Now that's being rather generic because almost never do they have eyes or, or, or noses or mouths. They, they don't really often have the um, figurative elements of a face per se. Uh, frequently, sometimes, they have concentric circles. And then they um, uh, sometimes are embellished with headdresses, aren't they? Yes, they are. Tell us about those. Well, there are quite a few different styles. The ones we have here in the, in the park are local feathers, mm -hmm. including the quail, which has this little notch on its feather. Mm -hmm. So you can easily identify the, the quail feathers on the petroglyphs. So it looks like they're using those uh, top knots or the quail plumes, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. It gives it a, a bit of a regal presence, doesn't it? A kind of a, a prestigious sort of headpiece, yes, right? Yes, like a headdress. Yeah. Like a Native American headdress. Yep. Right, right. And what kind of uh, abstract or ornate or whatever uh, designs are on their bodies? It varies widely. Uh, there are some that look like snakes. Mm -hmm. They're wearing snake clothing. Mm-hmm. And some that looks like lightning. And did they ever have any objects in their hands? Yes, quite often they had objects in their hand. The one we have here in our park has uh, what seems to be an addle, addle, a spear thrower. Yeah. And three three darts in the other hand. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that on their, on their figures they have different kinds of uh, images and designs all over them. Yes. What about their legs and their feet? The legs and their feet are usually not designed, mm -hmm. and they have some unusual feet with only two or three toes, most uh -huh. of them, uh -huh. and their legs are skinny and, and often just made of two different lines. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like they were trying to represent birds. Do you get that flavor as well or no? I, I'm not sure exactly what they were trying to show, frankly. Well, after 30 years of doing this, I'm sure you have some speculation. <laughs> That's true. There are several who ha that have rug designs, uh -huh. like you'd see in the Southwest. Right. Very suspicious looking, like uh, they had some influence from that area. Uh -huh. And so... Did you really limit yourself or focus on what you could see in the Ridgecrest Coso canopy or, or assemblage? Or did you also include 
anything for the American Southwest or any other areas in the, in the great beyonds and anything else or no? Yes. As a matter of fact, I actually went around the world looking at literature, researching and found the petroglyphs that stood out most to me. And these are actually incorporated in the rock art in the park. Really? We have rock art from nearby clans and tribes, Bishop and Death Valley and Hatchby. Mm -hmm. And then we have some rock art from further east. And they're actually almost every place in the world you, you find rock art. Mm -hmm. So then I went to other parts of the world and let's see, working from memory now, I, I've got a giraffe looking guy from Africa. Oh, wow. And some leopards and a rhino, but pretty much tried to make it a, a wide spectrum so that people could see the, the variety around the world. Now, did you visit any of those areas, or was this from your research and reading and uh, examination of photographs? I, I visited the ones on the base, of course, but I have not visited the other areas. Uh -huh. I was using, using literature. Great. Have you uh, been to any other areas besides the um, what they call Little Petroglyph Canyon, which is the only canyon that's really open and publicly available to? I have hiked all around this area. Oh, looking for petroglyphs and finding some in such places as the El Pasos. Yes. <laughs> and I snuck into the base once from the east, uh -huh. which is many miles from where the current petroglyphs are. And I found more, more petroglyphs. So they appear to be all over the, the Navy base. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So we only have a less than a minute and we'll um, we'll dig a little deeper into the story of Olaf Dowd and his petroglyph adventure momentarily. So you had the flip flop gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field then check out an introduction to paleo radiography a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines created by archaeologist radiographer and lecturer james elliott the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education it is approved by the chartered institute for archaeologists as four hours of training that's in the uk for those of you that don't know so don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development for more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
Welcome back, gang, to the uh, 58th episode of the Rock Art Podcast. This is Dr. Alan Garfica. We got Olaf Dowd, the uh, petroglyph replicator, on board. Olaf, we're gonna we're gonna shoot right to the you know the substance of what I wanted you to talk about. Tell them a bit about how you did Petroglyph Park. What is a Petroglyph Park? Petroglyph Park is a or was just a patch of desert for many many years, and Kern County decided with some group meetings help to uh, turn it into a petroglyph park and try and add to the theme of petroglyphs for Ridgecrest with the idea of drawing more people in. And I was fortunate enough to get the go ahead to do the park. And what do we have there at Petroglyph Park? What is the, what is the theme and what is there to see? The park has 32 boulders, some up to 20, nine pounds, 29 pounds, 29 tons. And each one is carved in different petroglyphs, which I did myself. So you were the only, only artist. Yes, I was the only artist. And how long did it take you to carve those 29 different uh, entities that are showcased in the park? It took parts of three years. Three years? Yes, we I would, had no idea. Yeah, we would shut, <laughs> we would shut down for the festival, uh huh, because we weren't through, and then we'd start up again. Three years, uh huh. Wow. Yes, it was the most enjoyable time, the peak of my artistic career for sure. Absolutely. So, what's the uh, what's the smallest one? What's the biggest canvas you've had in terms of the rock at the Petroglyph uh, Park? The smallest one is about two tons, and the biggest one's about 29 tons. So how the heck do you get all that rock, and where does it come from? The rock itself, the boulders, came from Searles Valley, which is about 25 miles to the east of us, and I got an okay to take rocks from their foothills and bring them to Ridgecrest for our park. Yeah, hand-selected. Who owns the land there that you're able to get those rocks? Searles Valley Minerals owns the land there. Okay. And how many tri- how many trips did you take, and how did you move all those rocks over to the park? We had a huge excavator, which is like a backhoe, but two or three times as big. Mm-hmm. And then we took that over to Searles Valley and went through the foothills there that I had picked out and got the very best boulders available and put them on a flatbed truck and drove back to Ridgecrest to the park and then unloaded them with the excavator again. So did you do all of your manufacturing, your artistic renditions there at the park on site? Yes. Wow. And I had had a a canopy, of course, to keep it a little cooler, but yeah, we did it all on site. Wow. And so you said there's something like uh, 30 different stations or sites in which you had to replicate the imagery that is found in rock art and mostly in Eastern California in the Coastal Range, but also in other areas as well. Now, what sort of tools did you use to do this? Well, the very first glyph I made was with a a piece of rock. I used the uh, Native American method Mm -hmm. and took the rock, had a sharp end on it, and use that to chip out the figure that I wanted. And the reason for doing that with the with the rock was that I wanted the rest of the park 
the petroglyphs to look like the original, like they were hand okay. hand done. So you replicated sort of the indigenous, the Native American prehistoric te- primitive technology that they used on a, on one of the first images that you crafted. Right. And then I had a little air hammer, which is like a little handheld jackhammer. And I, I did the rest of the images with that. They look very much like the, the handmade one. That first image was rather small, I presume. Yes. Small. Yeah. The first no, image. It, it was full size. Oh, okay. And it, it took a whole day to complete it by hand. Okay. Is that that image that you showed us? The, uh, that very large bighorn sheep, the full, uh, you know, yes. the actual life-size image? Or, the four of them in the group. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Right. So one of the things we learned from your effort, it's almost like a replicative experiment, is that um, that the images, you know, take a long time. Even the larger ones can take as much as eight hours for a single image. Correct? Yes, that's, that's correct. And we had some Navy archaeologists there well I explained that so that would help them too knowing how long it took the hundreds of thousands of of glyphs within the navy jurisdiction well let me tell you that that in itself is a is a huge scientific contribution because I've always wondered about that and I don't believe anyone I mean I know if there's there's some you know research that was done on that very very effort but on a very very small and modest way you're talking about a massive image that's a life-size image of a bighorn sheep that you crafted yourself with primitive technology. So if that's eight hours to do that, and we know that there's something like a, a minimum of 100,000 images there on that North Base, even figure half that time, we've got about 40,000 hours of labor-intensive effort done to produce those glyphs. Does that make any sense? Yes, exactly. So what's the um, takeaway from all this? What, what, what is your reflection upon, um, first of all, manufacturing all these images for the park and then fast forward seven years, the seventh event, and we did Petroglyph Park tours. <laughs> what was that like? It was a great experience. And we had several Native Americans in our last tour, and they were very happy with the park. So they were over the moon. Always it, was, it, was re- it was really, really amazing. They were very, very impressed. And I think they understood that, that the effort at making such a park and at producing such images and educating the general public to the, the purpose, the function, the uh, nature of these religious monuments would uh, educate them and help them to better understand Native American religion, heritage, values, and and isn't that isn't that part of what we we want to do to uh, help get along and you know sort of uh, recognize and excel in uh, diversity and uh, I think celebrate the differences between people and uh, learn to live with one another. I think that's one of the takeaway elements too this Petroglyph Park, the uh, Petroglyph Festival, and your uh, unbelievable effort at putting that uh, park together. That is just unbelievable. So, Olaf, I I really have to thank you for coming on board and sharing in this amazing journey of creating Petroglyph Park. 
and doing petroglyph replicas and um, talking to our audience about your artistic element effort. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Do you have any, any parting words to, to, uh, you know, share about your journey of rock art production, rock art replication and producing petroglyph park? What, what, what would you like them to, to know? It was a wonderful opportunity to take those figures that I've been dealing with in a small way and making huge artworks of them. And that was part of the park's purpose was as a tribute, artistic tribute to the the rock art and the Native Americans who made it. What was the most difficult one you had to do? How did you get those those huge pieces of rock to stand up and not fall on anybody? <laughs> That's my question. Yes, well, I used a ladder, of course, to do the upper parts of those tall monuments. Uh-huh. And there were at least three feet of each monument is buried is buried, I see. In the ground. So you really so you really had to anchor them in the ground, didn't you? Yes, with rebar and cement. Oh, I didn't know that they're rebarred and cemented. Oh my word. Wow. Wowie zowie. So as an engineer, you really have this is an engineering accomplishment, not only an artistic accomplishment, isn't it? Right, but luckily we had some engineers. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Olaf, it's it's an honor to have you and thank you so much for contributing to the Rock Art Podcast and sharing your journey of rock art replication and the uh, construction of Petroglyph Park. All right. Thank you. See you next week, gang, in the flip-flop. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.